turn over in your Bibles to Matthew 21. Matthew 21. This morning I want to speak to you when the cheering stopped. Speaking of Jesus is what's known as the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. This begins his last week, really, on earth. And um, as we open our Bibles to Matthew 21, I want to read the first 11 verses for us. You can follow along in your Bibles as I do so. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village. In front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden." The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the ground, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and those that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus, the Nazarene of Nazareth of Galilee. We find here this morning the, basically the last time that Jesus will enter into Jerusalem on his journey to the cross. It's a major public appearance before his crucifixion. And it was really a rather extremely important event in his time here on earth. Um, Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, we've seen how Christ has proclaimed to be king, how he proclaimed to be Messiah. And within this text of Scripture, we see several evidence of that supporting that claim. And uh, if you ever thought a king was coming to town, or in our day maybe a president, something like that, I don't know if you're ever around when President Obama or President Bush or one of the presidents frequented the Bay Area, but it's a pretty big deal. You got limos, you got helicopters, you got security, you got Air Force One, you got roads, freeways shut down. It's a pretty major event. And so, It should be. He's the president of our country. He deserves the respect and the honor of that office. And so whenever a dignitary or the president or in foreign lands, a king or a queen would do something, they would have a big hoopla about it. Well, here is Jesus Christ, the king of kings, coming to the end of his road, the end of his ministry, the end of his time here on this earth. And we think that couldn't he have done any better? Here you see him riding on a donkey, people throwing old clothes at him, and some tree branches. You think that he would have an army. You think that he would have something more than just that. But see, that's not who Christ proclaimed to be. He didn't proclaimed to be a king of this world. Matter of fact, he said to Pilate, I am not a king like you think kings are. He said, my kingdom is not of what? This world. It's not of this world. See, that's why when elections come and go and everybody gets in a tizzy and you know, you're glued to the, the TV screen and watching debates and news programs thinking who's going to be the candidate and who's going to win the next presidential election... We can really take 
hope and peace in the fact that, you know what? The person who will win the next presidential election or the next governorship or whatever your inclination or attraction is in politics is exactly who God wants and nobody else. That's the way it works. The Bible says that he raises up those in authority over us. Now, that doesn't mean we don't go to the polls. We don't vote for the best possible candidate that represents our values and whatnot. Of course, that's part of our citizenship. We should do that. But we have a tendency to get a little over-involved in those kind of things, thinking that somehow the world is going to be changed by these men in Washington, D.C. My friends, they're not going to be able to change anything without God's hand in it. And frankly, the future looks kind of bleak. Last time I checked, I think anybody that would run for president must be nuts. Out of their mind. Why would you want that job? It's a no-win situation. America is obviously the greatest country in the world, just by the simple fact that people still want to come here. But you know what? Jesus said very clearly that his kingdom is not of this world. So we have to catch ourselves sometimes, at least I do personally, I have to catch myself realizing that, wait a minute, it's not about all this. Only what is done for Christ will last. And so we see here in the first verse, Jesus coming to the end of his, his road, his earthly road. It says, when they drew near to Jerusalem, remember they're coming up from Jericho, Whenever you go to Jerusalem, you go up because it's raised up in elevation in response to anything else around it, really. And so when they drew near to Jerusalem, they were making quite a journey. It says they came to this little village, you might say, Bethphage or Beth, Bethphage. And, and, and it's, it's interesting that we don't know a lot about this little, this little village. There's just not a lot to be known. We know it's near Bethany because it kind of indicates that through the other Gospels. They went through Bethany and they came to this little village, but we don't know a whole lot about it other than it's near the Mount of Olives. And so the Lord himself is making this final journey, and as he approaches Jerusalem at the end of three years of ministry, which were really preceded by 30 years of obscurity, you might say, He's coming to the final goal, which his father, heavenly father, set out before him. And you remember, the multitudes are surrounding him. They're going along with him to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. It's that time of year. I mean, I'm sure these people that were surrounding Christ as he went on his way toward Jerusalem for the Passover, they didn't realize that they were surrounding the Passover lamb himself. (laughs) I don't think they saw that yet. But the multitudes followed along with him. It tells us they were in front of him, they were behind him, just a horde of people. And wherever Christ was, that's how it went, because he was a king like no other. During a census that was taken after this time, they figured out the number of sacrificial lambs that were slaughtered at the Passover and they determined it to be about 260,000 lambs. And that basically comes out to one lamb, or one lamb for every 10 people. So in rough estimates, there may have been 2 to 3 million people packed in that city during this time. It was just packed with people. And remember, they, they stop off at this little, this little village here. And, as I said, we don't know a whole lot about it. But turn over to the Gospel of John, because he does give us a little indication of what happened during Jesus' ministry at this time. John chapter 12. Now remember, Jesus had just finished raising who? Lazarus. It's not in Matthew, but it's here. He raised Lazarus from the dead. It's in the Gospel of John. And so, when somebody starts to raise people from the dead, it gives a little indication that this person is not like anybody else. 
So people started following Jesus with a passion, just to merely see what was going on. Who's he going to, what's he going to do next? What other kind of miracle? And then we saw how he healed the, the blind men, and all these things are going on. But it, he made a little visit near Bethany to his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in Bethany. It says in John chapter 1, John chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, that they did this six days before the Passover. So this is probably on Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath. He visited them. And as he faced the week that was to come with all the pain and anguish of the cross, looking forward all to that, even when he was gathered here with his disciples and his friends, you remember what happens, that Mary anoints his feet there in the first eight verses of John 12. We're not going to read it. But as she's doing that, Judas, one of the disciples, the one that was about to betray him, it says, asked a simple question. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this because not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And he was in charge of the money. He was the treasurer. And Jesus had to kind of rebuke him in a very pointed way. And so even though he was there with the man he had raised from the dead and Mary and Martha and his disciples, Satan was still at work. There was no rest ever, really, for the Savior when you live in the shadow of the cross like he did for so many years. I imagine it would be hard to get a good night's rest knowing that one day this is what you're going to face. You're going to face a week of pain and death. But here he was seeking to comfort his companions. And he had to rebuke Judas at this point. And then in verse, 12, or verse 9 it says of John 12, When the large crowd of the Jews learning that Jesus was there, they came. And look at, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. You can tell these people's hearts how wicked they were, even though they're religious people. It says, so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Get rid of the evidence. Because on account of him, it says in verse 11, many of the Jews were going away from them and believing in Jesus. So because Lazarus was a living testimony of Jesus Christ's supernatural power and his kingship, his messiahship, and his authority, they thought, you know what, let's just get rid of both of them. That was their plan. It was probably Monday, that following Monday, the next day after the crowd visited him in Bethany, that Jesus came to this small little village, and he prepared to go into Jerusalem through the east gate of the city. Now, our tradition in the church, we call this when? When does this always happen? When do we celebrate this? Palm Sunday. Well, I hate to tell you, it probably happened on a Monday. It probably happened on a Monday. There's a lot of support to deal with that. It didn't happen on a Sunday. It happened on a Monday. And that also helps us with the time of Passion Week, that Wednesday, there's never any, any evidence anything happened on that Wednesday because if you have it on Sunday, then if you plan out the things, Wednesday is just kind of a, a day of nothing. So there's always speculation about that. But the, the gospel accounts would have no record of Jesus' activities on Wednesday if the triumphal entry had been on Sunday. So there's a gap there that needs to be explained. But if it happens on Monday, there is no gap. Also, even in the Mosaic requirement for the sacrificial lambs for the Passover, they were to be selected on the tenth day of the first month and kept in the household until they were sacrificed on the fourteenth. And people have studied this who are greater minds than I, and they say that in the year that Jesus was crucified, whether it's 300 or whether it's 30 AD or 33, the 10th of Nisan, which is that month, was a Monday of that Passover week. 
And so if Jesus entered Jerusalem triumphantly on Monday, he was received into the hearts of the Jewish people as a nation, much as a family would receive a sacrificial lamb into their home. And in doing so, he even fulfilled that Passover symbolism to the smallest little detail. Even when he was presented as the lamb and then also sacrificed as the lamb on the 14th. It was the end of the road for him, but also it was a time when this prophecy was fulfilled. Back to Matthew 21, it says there, Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. See, from this text, you see here clearly that Jesus was in total control of what was going on here. You see his sovereign lordship just leaping out here at you. Everything was lining up with what Scripture said it would be for the Messiah. And he's the one that initiated this whole process. See, some liberal theologians believe, oh, poor Jesus, you know, he was a great guy. And man, if he just wouldn't have went so far with the Jewish nation, if he just wouldn't have pushed them over the edge, you know, when he did that, then they reacted adversely and then he ended up on the cross, the poor guy. No, this was the plan from the beginning, beloved. This is exactly how God desired this to happen. It speaks of the sovereignty of God. He set into motion a series of events that ended with his voluntary and gracious sacrifice of himself on the cross. And that was set in place in eternity past, the Bible says. So he wasn't just some well-meaning guy that went too far and pushed people over the edge and therefore ended up being done in by the religious leaders. No, that was all part of the plan. It says that the disciples were told to go to the village opposite them, and they would go there immediately. Two of them, we don't know who it was, doesn't say. Other times he'd send out Peter and John, whoever, we don't know who this is. But obviously, it says there the animals were out of sight, or he just would have pointed to them and said, hey, go, go, go get that donkey and the colt. And that speaks of his omniscience. That speaks of Christ's ability to understand things beyond the obvious. But I think also he knew that, because of his omniscience, that when he, these disciples went over there and they asked for this donkey and the colt, Somebody is going to be standing around and somebody's going to say, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> are you stealing somebody's horse? Are you stealing somebody's donkey? What are you doing? Back then, livestock was very precious. So he knew that. He knew somebody would ask that. And that's why he said, if anyone says anything to you, don't worry about it. Just say the Lord needs them. Mark points out that some of the bystanders, Luke says that they were the owners, did he indeed ask. They said, what are you doing on tying that colt? And they said, oh, the Lord needs him. And they gave him permission. Maybe these people were believers. Maybe they were followers of Christ. We don't know. Also, the other Gospels tell us that these two animals were unridden. Nobody had ever sat on them, which seems fit for a king. If you're going to have a procession, even on a donkey, you know, sometimes it's, it's special when you get to do something that... Nobody else has ever done before. Both of these animals were unridden, and that's how they would do it. Usually it was a horse for a king. It wasn't a donkey. But it still was a gesture of respect and honor to give such an animal that had never been ridden to somebody. It's almost like God had planned it all out, this animal specifically, especially just for Christ during this time. And it took place 
so that it might be fulfilled what the prophet had said. Remember, Jesus' life, his earthly life, really had two goals. First of all, it was to do the Heavenly Father's will. You see that over and over again as we look through the gospel. And secondly, it was to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah's first coming. And he did that faithfully. Now, as you read this, this is out of Zechariah 9. As you read this prophecy... In verse 5, it says, say to the daughter of Zion, you say, well, who is that? Well, back in that culture and in that day, and even somewhat even today, the local people are always associated with the local city. And the local city is, is usually associated near the, the nearest hill or the nearest mountain that it's, that it's near. So when they're saying the daughter of Zion, they're really speaking of the people of Jerusalem. And if you turn over to Zechariah 9, just a couple books to your left there in the Bible, you can see that prophecy played out. 500 years earlier, the prophet Zechariah had predicted that the people of Jerusalem would hail the Messiah as their king, as he was coming into the city, and also that he would be gentle and humble, and he would sit on a donkey, even the colt. The fowl of the beast of burden. That's what it says in Zechariah 9.9. Now, most people would say that's no way for a king to ride in and be lifted up and exalted and for his, his big event on a donkey. Are you kidding me? I mean, donkeys aren't really thought that highly of even today. They're a humble animal. A beast of burden, it says. Why would you allow a king to ride on such an animal? But see, this was a king like no other king. You'd think that he would ride in on a white stallion with a sword. And... See, that's what these people were envisioning, beloved, because they were missing the whole point of his kingship. What they thought was, okay, Jesus, now's the time. Now we're going to go into Jerusalem, and you're going to take over, and you're going to... Get us out from under the reign of this Roman government. And this is our time to rise up militarily. This is our time to take back what's rightfully ours from the Roman government. See, he did not come in earthly splendor. He didn't come to reign with a bunch of earthly power. He didn't come in wealth, but he came in poverty. We see that. He didn't come in grandeur, but he came in meekness. He came in humility. See, he did not come for that reason to slay Israel's enemies on this day. That wasn't the purpose. That's what they were thinking, but that wasn't the purpose. He came to save all mankind. The incarnation was a time of humility for him, not exaltation, not glorification. Because he was a king like no other king. And his coronation was a coronation like none other. I mean, it was anything but triumphant. But it was exactly how God wanted it to be. It was a sovereign choice of God the Father and God the Son who himself willingly came to earth as a, a servant Savior to take upon himself the sins of the world. Nothing could be more appropriate than a beast of burden because that's really what Christ was doing. He was bearing our burden of sin. Even in Daniel chapter 9, not going to get into all that, but there's a time of Artaxerxes rebuilding the temple and the Messiah would be coming. Time of 69 weeks. There's been certain individuals that basically said right to the day this prophecy was fulfilled when Christ rode into Jerusalem that day. But you know what? None of the disciples 
including even the two that went to get the donkey, they didn't understand Jesus' real purpose here. They didn't understand all the events that were going to take place. It was going to just blow them away. Back in John chapter 12, verse 16, it says this, These things his disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that the things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So when all this is going on, the disciples don't have a clue. They're probably going along with the crowd thinking, yeah, this is it. This is when we're going to get the kingdom. Remember, they're always fighting over the kingdom. Who's going to be number one in the kingdom? Number two, who's going to sit on the left? Who's going to sit on the right? They're getting excited. Their adrenaline's starting to pump. Hey, it may not be a, a big parade like I, we would think a king, but, you know, whatever, Jesus, get on the donkey and let's go, man. Let's go take over. Because they had no blankets, it says the disciples laid their garments on the colt and on the donkey because they didn't know which one he was going to ride. They didn't have a clue. They put their clothes on both of them, brought them back. The other gospels say that they helped Jesus up onto him so he wouldn't experience the sweat of the animal. They put their clothes on. Nice gesture. But he mounted the smaller one. He mounted the colt. Another sign of his humility. See, this is what Jesus is trying to get across to his disciples the whole time. Remember, just a chapter ago, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus and said, Hey, can they sit on, my, on your left and right, my sons, by the way? And he said, You don't know what you're asking for. Can you drink of this cup that I'm about to drink? And they both said, Oh, yeah, no problem. Very proud in their approach to this. And so, we come down to verse 8 in our text. After they bring the donkey and the colt, they put their, on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. They helped him up there. He got on. And it says in verse 8 and 9, Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and followed after him started shouting, Hosanna, the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. See, as Jesus began to ride into the city on that Monday, most of the multitude started putting their garments down on the road ahead of him. You're thinking, why would they do that? Was the road muddy? What, you know, it's just a donkey. I mean, I'm sure he's, he's dirty anyway. No, it's, it's really a sign of respect. It's a sign of, of being in submission to his authority. See, that just shows you how much they thought Jesus was going to go in there and become their literal king and kick the Romans out, and they're going to be part of that, and they're, they're lifting him up as a military man at this point. And by laying down their cloaks, they're saying, yeah, walk over our clothes because we want to be in submission to our new king. 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13, citizens did that. So it's just symbolism of his authority to them. But unfortunately, it was the wrong kind of authority. They were looking at it purely from an earthly, military-type look. And he wanted them to look at it from a spiritual. And he, they didn't do that. In John 12, it also says that these branches that they cut down were from palm trees. It's a symbol of salvation, joy. And so this great multitude, probably hundreds and thousands of people surrounding Christ at this point, going into Jerusalem. Just a mass of people, a mob, following him. And there was this great excitement within the hearts of the people, thinking that their deliverance was just around the corner. It's interesting to note in John chapter 11 that it tells us that the chief priests and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, basically set out an edict. They set out an a, a order 
that said, you know what, if anyone knows where Jesus is, he should report it because we need to take care of this man. We have to come and seize him. And so here you have all these masses of people surrounding Christ, and you can see they're just blatant disregard for that warning. They didn't really care. They said, hey man, this guy raises people from the dead. He heals blind people. I mean, amazing. Let's see what he's going to do to the Romans now when we get in there. He's going to kick them out. He's going to give us back our freedom. And they were caught up it from, it from a human perspective. It was almost a mob hysteria kind of a thing. You know, you see on the on the news, some of these things over in Libya and other countries where the fall of a, a, a dictator happens and you see the mob mentality and it just, it's, it's incredible what happens. We've seen the same thing even in, in L.A. years ago when the riots, you know, people start tearing up storefronts and flipping over cars and pretty soon people are doing they don't even know why they're doing it. It's a hysterical mob. Yet, even though it seems totally out of control, it's completely in accord with what God had planned out. Just a couple days earlier, Caiaphas said this before the fellow members of the Sanhedrin. In John chapter 11, he says, You, you know nothing at all, nor do you take an account that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people. And that the whole nation should not perish. And then John goes on to explain, Caiaphas did not say this on his own initiative, it says, but being the high priest that year, he actually prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. He said something, he didn't know what he said. God was in total control of this situation. And it seems like this crowd, this massive crowd is surrounding Christ, and he's on the donkey, and he's riding the colt there, and his disciples are with him, and this crowd is shouting out. They begin to shout out, Hosanna, which means what? It means save now. It means deliver us now. Now is the time. Now we get the retribution. Come on, let's go get these Romans. Free us from this, this military dictator that holds us down as a people. Come on, you're the Messiah. You're the king. Save now. That's what he's saying. And they even used his very common messianic title, Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. It's unfortunate that that crowd on that day was not interested in Jesus saving their souls. <laughs> but he was only interested in, they were only interested in him saving their nation. They missed the whole point. Even like the twelve, they probably sat back and wondered, if Jesus were truly the Messiah... Why wouldn't he just you know, snap his fingers and overthrow the Roman government? I mean, if he can raise somebody from the dead, if he can give blind people their sight back, he has supernatural power. Why doesn't he just snap his fingers and take care of these people? And so they're really honoring him as a conqueror. They're thinking of him as a military conqueror as he rode into Jerusalem. Now remember, they're just about to celebrate the Passover. What does the Passover uh, commemorate? It commemorates the Lord's freeing them, delivering Israel from where? From Egypt. Can you see how it's all just kind of coming together? They're thinking, wow, okay, it's a Passover. Man, this is just like God's going to do this. Jesus is going to ride in Jerusalem, and he's going to overthrow the, the uh, Roman government militarily. It's just going to be like it was happened in Egypt. What would be a better occasion? The people wanted a conquering, reigning Messiah who would come in great military power to throw off the burden, the yoke that the Roman government had established on them. But you know what? Jesus didn't come to conquer the Roman government. He came to conquer sin and death. He didn't come to make war with Rome, but he came to make Peace with God for all men. Even though the shouts of the multitude were entirely appropriate, and they were even a fulfillment of the prophecy, I don't think the people had any idea of what they were saying. I don't think these people were truly following 
Jesus in the sense that he desired them. The people had no idea of the true significance of what they were doing. Nor did they understand that Jesus would soon die on a cross on their behalf. They had no clue. He entered Jerusalem with this motley group of disciples and ordinary people, this mob, proclaiming his greatness. Even though within a matter of days, this same mob would turn against him. Think about that. None of them would stand by him. I mean, the multitude even acknowledged him, Jesus, as son of David. Most common messianic title. They were quoting from Psalm 118. Psalm of deliverance. See, they kind of understood this because more than a hundred years earlier, the Jews had hailed, they hailed uh, Maccabeus with the same psalm because he delivered them before in a military fashion. So they thought, hey, this is a repeat. Different guy, same thing. But they were wrong in their belief about who Christ was. They knew he was a king, but they didn't understand the nature of his kingdom. They didn't understand him being of another world. They, they couldn't grasp that. They couldn't get their mind around that. That's why in a couple days they turn against him. And they ask for the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus. In Luke 19.14 it says, We don't want this man, speaking of Jesus, to reign over us. We don't want a man that comes in on a donkey and is not going to overthrow the government. Why would we follow somebody like that? See, they wanted Jesus really on their own terms, didn't they? They said, hey, we'll follow you, Jesus, but you know what? It's going to be on our terms, not yours. They would not bow to him as king. They would not bow to him as Lord. They wanted Jesus to destroy Rome Don't you dare worry about our sins or our hypocritical, superficial religion. Don't you go there, Jesus. That's why it was so appalling to them see this next week when he goes to Jerusalem and he cleans out the temple. He was addressing their sin. They didn't want that. They didn't ask him for that. They just wanted him to overthrow the government. You know, it's... In my Bible, the top of chapter 21, it says the triumphal entry. And it seems almost everything but that. I mean, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of triumph in this, the way he's coming in here on this beast of burden, people throwing clothes on the road and branches. There's no trumpets, there's no military might, there's nothing like that. He comes in very meek, very mild. Now when we come to Christ, beloved, when we look at Jesus, do we want him on our terms? Do we say, yeah, Jesus, I'll follow you, but... (laughs) I mean, this thing of dying to self every day or taking up the cross or, you know, I want Jesus as my Savior... I want Jesus, the Jesus who died on the cross for my sins. But don't start talking to me about sacrifice. That's a whole other thing. It's really not. It's the same. You can't have one or the other, beloved. Either you have Jesus as Lord and Savior, you don't have him at all. Period. And we're called to bow our knee You know, one day you might say, this isn't fair. Here, Jesus sacrificed all this stuff, and look at how he's got to go through this parade, almost in a mocking way.
And what one day he will be crowned in a way that's perfectly befitting to a king of his stature. The time of rejection will be over. The opportunity to follow Christ will be over. Philippians 2, 10, 11 says that every knee will bow. Those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That will happen one day. The first time he came, he came to provide man's salvation. Please hear this. But when he comes again... He will come to display His sovereignty, His great ultimate judgment. Turn over to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation 5, we see this described for us. In verse 8, it says, When He had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Christ, each holding a harp, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. He writes, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Verse 12, saying with a loud voice, here's what they're saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. One day that will happen, beloved. We live in the age of grace now. There's, there's an opportunity for all to come to the Savior, the loving Savior, who gave himself a ransom for all. My question to you is, what are you waiting for? See, it's not a matter of whether you will bow your knee to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's not the question. The question is when. The question is how. Will you benefit from his sacrifice on Calvary? Or, you, or will you reap the judgment that falls on all those who reject Him as Savior, but will acknowledge Him as Lord one day. Back to Matthew 21 here, closing, verses 10 and 11. It says, And when He entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? Who is this guy? And the crowd said, oh, this is the prophet. Notice all of a sudden it changes. It's not the son of David. What do they say? Oh, this is a prophet from that little town, Nazareth of Galilee. Almost dismissive in their answer. Who is this guy? Oh, he's just some prophet. It's not who we thought he was. Doesn't look like he's going to free us from the Romans. See, obviously they had paid little attention to what they had been proclaiming Jesus, the Messiah, son of David, who came in the name of the Lord. They didn't have a clue. That just shows me that it was a supernatural thing. I mean, God sometimes works in myriads of ways. Even through unbelievers. To bring about his desired outcome. That's why sometimes, you know, we stop and we, on a day like today, and we think of the tragedy ten years ago. And I remember after that, people saying, why? Why would God allow that to happen? You know, and, and those who don't believe in God will say, yeah, where's your God now? Why didn't he protect us? You know, how do you deal with that? How do you answer that? You either got to say, well, he must have been sleeping. 
He was up there sleeping on the job. He missed that. He woke up finally and caught one of the planes and caused it to land in the field. But the other ones, man, they just took out thousands of people. You know, he was, he was asleep at the wheel. That God up there in heaven. I don't believe that for a second. You don't think God knew exactly what was going to happen on September 11th? He knew it on September 10th. He knew it, you know, it's eternity past. He knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew exactly the names of those who were going to die in those buildings and giving their lives a sacrifice, trying to save people. He knew exactly the children who would be orphaned that day or the spouses that would be lost. But you know what? For some reason, ultimately it has to be for his glory. He allowed it to happen. Doesn't mean that he was the author of it. God's not the author of evil. But for some reason, in the economy of God, he allowed those things to take place ten years ago. I do know through reading and through research that the gospel of Jesus Christ has gone into more Muslim countries after 9-11 than ever before. We don't know why things happen like that. We don't know why Jesus was allowed to ride into this city and in a couple days be hung on a cross. In our logic, it doesn't make sense. But in God's economy, it makes perfect sense. See, they would have accepted him as the earthly king, but they would not accept him as their heavenly king. And beloved, that's how it is with Christ. He offers himself as a king. And there are few who understand, a few, when they embrace him as the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the king of peace who brings salvation, the king who comes and makes men right with God. And then there's a group of people who understand who Christ is and they see all his credentials. They look at all the external stuff. They look at the, from a materialistic viewpoint, they look at his kingdom, they look at the wealth, the health, the happiness. So they say, yeah, I want to follow Jesus for what I can get. I want to follow Jesus because he makes me feel good. I want to follow Jesus because he meets my felt needs, whatever it might be. See, they're not willing to face the reality of their own sinfulness. They're not willing to face their estrangement from God or their, their emptiness. So when it gets to that point, they basically curse him. They turn their backs on him. So there's this mob crowd following Christ, just caught up in all that. And then there are those who truly follow Christ for the right reasons. And I guess my question to you this morning is, which group are you in? Are you following Jesus as Lord and Savior? Have you committed your life to Him? Have you bowed your knee to Him? Have you confessed His name? Or are you simply following a convenient Jesus? A Jesus who's there when you get the bad report from the doctor. Or the relationship isn't working out too well. Or the kids are a little rebellious. Or maybe the finances aren't balancing out. Well, I need to call on Jesus now because I need him. How is it with you? Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that it truly lifts up, it exalts Christ in every way. We ask our own hearts where we are in this crowd. You think of the disciples, they were definitely confused at this point. They didn't know what was happening. 
but they were still following him. And then there was the crowd, the massive people that just wanted to follow Jesus on their terms, not his. I wonder where our hearts are this morning, beloved. Are you just following Jesus for what you can get? For how he makes you feel? Or do you truly understand that he's the only option you have? That there's no other Lord, there's no other creator, there's no other provision that God has made for the sacrifice, for the forgiveness of your sins. There's no door three or two. There's only one choice to be made. Have you come to Christ in your brokenness, in your sin, and cried out to Him and said, Lord, save me. Be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm willing to leave all and follow you. That's the kind of prayer God will hear. That's the kind of prayer that Jesus will hear. See, He wants all or nothing. Bottom line, that's it. He told His own disciples, those who were following Him, unless you can die to yourself, take up your cross, an instrument of death, and follow Me, don't worry about it. That's the price. He paid the price for our sin on Calvary. But there's definitely a price to be paid in following Christ. It's not just a rose garden, tiptoe through the tulips kind of mentality. It costs us daily to be his follower. The good thing is he's given us the resources and the ability through the power of the Spirit to meet those needs. He wants us dependent on him, not on ourselves. So we pray this morning, if there's anyone here who has yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, that they would cry out. That they could truly say at the end of this day, it, it, is, it is well with my soul that I have trusted in the one and only Savior for the forgiveness of my sins. And I know that He has saved me. He's forgiven me. He's made me new. He's given me new desires to replace the old fleshly ones. He's given me a heart of sacrifice, willing to serve within the body of Christ. Willing to fellowship and pray for others. Father, we pray that you would truly do your work here this morning. And Father, we thank you for the example of your son, your humble servant who came, who rightfully deserved to be exalted, to be lifted up, to be riding on that white stallion into Jerusalem that day, but he chose the humble. The humble means to accomplish your will, not his. And Father, we just pray that you would remind us of that this week as we go out into this world that's so filled with sin. Lord, help us to see the needs in people's lives that we could take this message of hope message of the gospel, message that Christ still forgives those who come to him willingly and forsake their sin and acknowledge him as Lord and Savior. We pray, Lord, that you would do your work. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.